If you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, our, our text this evening is, begins in verse 16 and extends to verse 23. Um, the pastors are we're working our way through on Sunday nights, Paul's letter to uh, the Colossians. Uh, and last time we, we got a little bit into uh, some of the issues that Paul's confronting, especially in verse 8, when he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy an empty deceit according to human tra- tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Of course, in the history of the church, um, that, that verse has been used in all sorts of ways, um, most famously by the early church father, Tertullian, um, who argued that that uh, taught Christians that they shouldn't care about anything philosophical. Uh, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens, he argued. And so Christians shouldn't have anything to do with worldly wisdom or worldly philosophy. That's not what that's saying, um, as we'll talk about a little bit more because it comes up in our passage tonight. Um, Paul is particularly warning uh, concerning a, a kind of a homebrew type spirituality that was unique to Colossae, that, that brought together elements of, of Greek mysticism along with some elements of Jewish um, practices in order to try to um, help Christians uh, along the way to spirituality, along the way to holiness. And what Paul is going to teach us tonight is that, is that the, the wisdom that may be pervade uh, kind of within the culture of the church or within the culture of religion, if it doesn't take us back to Jesus Christ, it, it's not only worthless, it's potentially dangerous. The substance, he says, is Christ. And so we need to come again and again and again to Jesus. That's the way we advance in the Christian life. But in order to see this clearly from God's Word, we, we need not only to read the Bible, we, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's ask Him for His help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we do desperately need your help tonight. Certainly we can read the words of the Bible and we can hear the words of the Bible but it would simply be reading and hearing apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and that you would open our eyes of faith tonight, that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your word. And indeed, we ask that you would lead us by the hand to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. So Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom 
in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I know some of you are reading through Chronicles of Narnia with your children, or maybe you've just done that recently. One of my favorite of the seven is Prince Caspian. Truth be told, they're all my favorites. But, but Prince Caspian is one of my favorite favorites of the Chronicle of Narnia. There, there's a scene there um, toward the end after Caspian is returned, just in the nick of time, and they are facing Miraz's armies outside of Aslan's Howl. Uh, and it's when Nicobrick, uh, one of the dwarfs, the black dwarf, suggests another way for Caspian to defeat the forces of Miraz. He says, rather than wait for Aslan and the kings and queens of old, he suggests a werewolf and a hag. But ultimately, Nicobrick suggests a far more dangerous power. Uh, The scene goes, well, who do you mean? Said Caspian at last. I mean a power so much greater than Aslan's it held Narnia's spell down for years and years if the stories are true. The white witch, cried the three voices all at once. And from the noise, Peter guessed that the three people had leaped to their feet. Yes, said Nicobrick, slowly, very distinctly. I mean the witch. Sit down again. Don't take a fright at a name as if we were children. We want power. We want a power that will be on our side. As for power, do not the stories say that the witch defeated Aslan and bound him and killed him on the very stone which over there, just beyond the light? A little bit later, Dr. Cornelius says, stop, stop, stop. You're all going on too fast. The witch is dead. All the stories agree on that. What does Nicobrick mean by calling on the witch? That gray and terrible voice, which had spoken only once before, said, oh, is she? And then the shrill whining voice began, oh, bless his heart. His little dear majesty need not mind about the white lady. That's what we call her, being dead. The worshipful master doctor is only making game of a poor old woman like me when he says that sweet master doctor, learned master doctor. Who ever heard of a witch that really died? You can always get them back. Of course, as you remember from the scene, they they end up having a huge fight and the hag and the werewolf are killed. Uh, Nicobrick too dies. And the kings and queens come in just at that moment and, and victory is going to be secured for Caspian. But the danger of that scene, as we read it, as we feel it, came in turning from the true king, Aslan, and the kings of old to those who could not only not deliver, but also would ultimately destroy them all. That's the same danger that the Colossian Christians face, the same danger that Paul is dealing with here in our passage that we've read tonight. False teachers have come with plausible arguments about a way for spiritual deliverance, but their worldview, their philosophy, not only could not deliver, it would ultimately destroy the faith of of the Colossians. You see, that's the point that Paul makes at the end of the passage. Your Bibles are open, right? Look at verse 23 again. He says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. No value. 
these false teachers who seem so plausible, talking about Jesus while mixing in Jewish teaching and pagan spirituality to offer the Colossians an approach to how to stop sinning, but their wisdom couldn't and wouldn't work. And even more, it would lead them away from the only one who could deliver them, both now and in the life to come. It would lead them away from Jesus himself. Friends, the only way to put to death our sin and the only way to put on new ways of holiness is to come again and again and again in faith in Jesus Christ. For as we see ourselves united to Jesus in his death and his resurrection, and as we begin to live in the light of who we are, putting to death our sin, saying no to our sin, and putting on new practices of holiness, saying yes to God's way, we grow with a growth that comes from God, as Paul says in our passage. And so what were these shadows of wisdom that the false teachers were proposing? What, what were these ways of spirituality that seemed to, to add, add to Jesus in such a way that perhaps they might stop sinning and indulging the flesh? Well, in a sermon on this text, Pastor Kent Hughes helpfully noted that the false teachers gave three solutions to the problem of remaining sin and, and the pursuit of spiritual maturity. And these three solutions that the false teachers offered were legalism, asceticism, and mysticism. Legalism, asceticism, and mysticism. These were the shadows of wisdom that they presented. So notice, notice first the way Paul describes this legalism that was part of what the false teachers offered. It's in verse 16. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. You see, the, the false teachers in Colossae were, were mixing pagan elements, manipulating the elemental forces of the earth. So uh, earth, wind, fire, and water. Mixing those elements of the earth with with Jewish elements to create this unique brew of homespun spirituality. And in here in verse 16, we see the Jewish elements, namely dietary laws and feast days. And so these, these false teachers taught you had to have a rigorous approach to what you eat and drink. And if you did so, if you would simply observe the right foods and the right drinks and you avoided the wrong foods and the right dr wrong drinks, not only would you lose weight, that's why we avoid certain food and drink, but you would actually progress in your spirituality. You would draw closer to Jesus based on observing certain dietary laws. But they also uh, recommended a rigorous approach to the days you observe. They said that if you would simply observe these, these Jewish festivals, these Jewish feast days, then you would enter into a, a higher kind of spirituality. You would draw closer to Jesus. Now, I don't think Paul here is, is criticizing when he speaks of a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. I don't think he's criticizing the Christian practice of, of observing the first day of the week as, a, as the Lord's Day, as we do. We know that he and the Apostle John worshipped on the first day of the week. But he is criticizing those who, who think that observing special days and observing the passing of the moon, that, that somehow that would lead you into a deeper spirituality that would give you something that would put you closer to Jesus. At, at the heart of what these false teachers were saying with their legalistic recommendations was to advance in the Christian life, to gain God's favor, you must observe rules. 
rules about what you eat, rules about what you drink, rules about the days you observe, and this is how you progress in the Christian life. This rule-oriented approach, this legalism, they, they merged this legalism together with asceticism. That, that seems to be a particular concern of Paul as he's writing to these Colossians. He, he mentions it specifically in two places in what we read. In verse 18, you see it, he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. And then he mentions it again, at least by implication, starting in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive to, in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. So twice, Paul mentions asceticism as an element in the, the false teacher's worldview or, or their philosophy. So rigorous self-denial, extreme abstinence, austerity, all ways to, to observe regulations about handling and touching and tasting foods that would that cause one to be at odds with the elemental principles of the world, earth, wind, fire, and water. This is the nature, it seems, of the false teacher's asceticism. But, but don't miss why the false teachers were recommending rules, legalism, and asceticism, denying the flesh, bringing austerity, severity to the body. And don't miss why the Colossians were open to these plausible arguments. These false teachers claimed that legalism and asceticism were necessary for stopping the indulgence of the flesh, for leading you into, into greater holiness, greater spirituality, closer to Christ. But there's one additional part to their teaching. Legalism, asceticism, but also mysticism. The way Paul describes the mysticism is in verse 18 too. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body grows. And so part of the mystical experiences that these false teachers were, were recommending, they seem to center on angel worship as, a, as mediators, perhaps, between heaven and earth. By worshiping these angels, we might somehow have an experience that would lead us into a greater connection with God and greater holiness. And so this visionary talk, this angel worship, it's at the very heart of what these teachers were recommending. And yet, Paul's going to argue here that, that these three things, legalism, asceticism, and mysticism, they can't deliver what they promise. They promise that you'll stop indulging the flesh, but they cannot do it. They can't deliver. And in fact, by, by following these practices, the Colossians were in danger of, of walking away from Jesus. Now, it doesn't take much imagination, particularly if you know anything about Christianity and, and, and the contemporary scene, to, to think of, of those who recommend legalism, asceticism, and mysticism. Uh, historically speaking, the Roman Catholic Church has a, has a long history of recommending asceticism through monasticism and, and other practices. Legalism 
through certain rules that would be applied, mysticism through contemplative prayer and, and other practices, all ways of wisdom that, that all too often promise to lead you closer to Christ and yet inevitably take you away because the focus is not on Christ but on yourself. And then two, in Protestant Christianity, we've been great at emphasizing legalistic practices such as total abstinence from alcohol or total abstinence from caffeine or avoidance of certain forms of entertainment or, or mystical experiences, second waves of blessing, perhaps speaking in, in sign gifts and other things as, as a way of entering into a greater experience with God. And yet, what is Paul's word to us here? He says these pathways, verse 23, they have an appearance of wisdom. An appearance of wisdom. But, but really, such pathways only offer self-made religion. And that self-made religion all too often breeds arrogance and spiritual emptiness. Because legalism, asceticism, and mysticism cannot deliver what they promise. They can't stop you from giving into your desires or indulging your sinful nature. Why? Well, because the shadowy wisdom of legalism, asceticism, and mysticism puts the primary focus on you. On what you do. On your experience. On how you're drawing near to God. And what you really need is Jesus. When, when self-made religion puts the focus on you, it takes you away from Christ. And what Paul wants us to see is over against the shadowy wisdom of the false teachers, the, sh- the substance, the substance of all of our hopes and aspirations, uh, the, the substance of, of the pathway to holiness is Christ. He says that in verse 17 explicitly. He said, these, speaking particularly in regards to the, the Jewish elements that have been mixed into this spirituality, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so any wisdom that the Old Testament system offered, whether in regard to dietary laws or festivals or any wisdom that legalism, asceticism, and mysticism might possibly offer is a wispy shadow compared to the substance that is Jesus the Messiah. And that's because Jesus alone provides the means for what the Colossians truly want. Jesus is the way to stop the indulgence of the flesh. Jesus is the way to live holy, spiritually mature lives. And that's because Jesus is everything. He's the hope of glory. And we've seen that already in this letter. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We'll see it next time. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. He, he's our everything. And in the next chapter, as I say, what Paul's going to talk about our union with Christ that serves as a motivation for holiness in, in much greater detail. But he gives us some indication, even in our passage, how Jesus is supreme and sufficient for stopping the, the sinful indulgence of our, of our sinful desires. And he does so in two ways. He points us to, towards holding on to Christ. Notice what Paul faults the false teachers for. He says in verse 19 that these false teachers are not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Now in saying this, Paul's actually pointing up a problem of the false teachers. 
that, that the false teacher's teaching was actually leading people away from not holding on to Christ. But, but he's also indicating and saying that the, re, that the real means of spiritual advance is clinging to Christ. Clinging to Jesus as our spiritual head who nourishes us as part of his body called the church. So, so what does holding to Christ look like? Well, I think among many things it looks like, it looks like a regular, consistent use of what we call the ordinary means of grace. Uh, we come to worship on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and we gather around word, sacrament, and prayer, these, these means of grace. And as we do so, we, we are seeking to use these means as a way of clinging to Christ. Now what we discover is when we, when we come to worship him and we come to use these means of grace and we come to cling to Christ, Christ actually reminds us, no, he's clinging to us. <laughs> he's holding on to us. But, but it's only as we use these means of grace, it's only as we hear the preaching of the gospel week by week, it's only as we're pointed to Christ in the ministry of the word, as we come to the table, as we are standing at the waters of baptism, as we pray, it's only as we're pointed to Jesus over and over and over again that we see we can't rescue ourselves. We can't advance one step in the Christian life apart from the love and power of God in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is our everything, and we only come to know that as we use the ordinary means of grace. But I think it also looks like speaking the truth in love. This passage, the, verse 19, it's really interesting. It, it actually echoes a, a passage in a sister letter. If you look at chapter 219 again, uh, not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. So keep Keep looking at that verse. Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16 say this. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, listen, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working together properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Those two passages are in parallel. Here in, in Colossians, it's stated negatively that the false teachers are not holding to the head, and so they're not speaking the truth in love. But Paul in Ephesians says the way we grow, the way we, we are knit together as we are being knit together to Christ and knit together with one another is by how? Telling one another to, the truth in love. Now, all too often, we take that, that phrase, speaking the truth in love, and we, we tend to think that it's really, ah, I'm giving a, somebody a piece of my mind, and I love them for it, right? Uh, I love you so much, I'm going to give you a piece of my mind and tell you what I really think. That's not what's going on there. Speaking the truth in love, in the context of, of Ephesians 4, as you relate it here to this Colossians 2 place, has everything to do with telling each other the truth about Jesus, telling each other the truth about Jesus, about who he is for us, what he's done for us, how much we need him, how we long for him, how he's coming again. We, we tell each other about his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. We tell each other about his continuing intercession, which means we need each other in corporate worship because that's where it happens. 
I need you in corporate worship, not to hear me preach. I need you in corporate worship because when you sing and you pray and you affirm the, in, the, in the back and forth of our worship service, you actually are strengthening my faith. When I hear little children sitting in the congregation praying the Lord's Prayer with me, it strengthens my faith. And in the same way, you need one another as we do that. Speaking the truth in love to each other as we are growing together into Christ. Because as you hear each other sing the hymns and affirm the creeds and the catechisms and, and, and you pray together, you're actually speaking the truth as it is in Jesus to each other. And that's how we grow and that's how we hold on to Christ. If we absent ourselves from each other, it becomes much more difficult to hold on to Jesus. And so Paul tells us that the way to progress in the Christian life is not through these self-made philosophies of legalism, asceticism, and mysticism. Rather, the way to, to advance in the Christian life is to hold on to Christ together. To hold on to Christ as the people of God. But there's one last way, he tells us. One last way in which Christ is the substance for us. Not just holding on to Christ, but also reckoning ourselves in Christ. He says, again... If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? Now, again, we'll get more into this next week, but we can't miss what Paul's arguing here. We're united to Jesus. And because we have been united to Jesus by spirit-wrought faith, we've died. We've died to sin's dominion. We've died to the power of this world to judge us and condemn us. We've died to the, the so-called elemental spirits of the world, right? Earth, wind, fire, water. That's what the, the Greeks of the first century believed really ran the world. We've died to all of that. It doesn't have a claim on us. Further, we're alive. Not alive to the world, but alive by the power of Jesus. We live for God. We live differently. And because we have died to the world and we are alive to Jesus, we must no longer indulge the flesh as though it has some kind of command over us. The process then of reckoning, of living in the light of who we truly are by virtue of our union with Jesus, it's at the very heart of spiritual maturity. It's really the only way to stop indulging our sinful nature, to stop indulging the flesh, and it is the biblical prescription for our new life in Jesus. Because it forces us to come again and again and again to Jesus. Who am I in him? What has he done for me? How is he supreme in my life? How does, his, how does he benefit me so that his benefits serve as a holy sufficiency for my walking? So I don't have to add in other things, my own doing, my own working, my own denying. I don't have to add any. Jesus is enough. So that all of our living and all of our thinking, all our desires, all our delights, all our hopes, all our heartbreaks, all our victories, all our defeats, all our tears, all our laughters, all our eating, all our drinking, all our lovemaking, all our leave-taking, every part of our life is in Jesus. Every part. He alone is supreme. And he alone is sufficient. He alone is satisfying. The substance of the Christian life, my friends, is Christ. Thanks be to God.
Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I said earlier today that preaching is a weak means, and yet it is your means. Your means for growing us in, in your image. Your means of, of growing us in grace. Lord, grow us with the growth that comes from you. Lord Jesus, we long for you to be supreme in our lives. We long for you to be first in every part, and we long for every part of our lives to be oriented to you. Jesus, we want you to be the substance of our lives. And so, Lord, please use your word, but also use this table to strengthen our commitment to you, but also, better, to, to strengthen our own assurance that you are utterly committed to us. You have grasped hold of us, and you will not let us go. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.